0: John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood beside, stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. And she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father, and your Father to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she said these things as he said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Allison. <laughs> well, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Happy Easter to you and to yours. Um, you know, Easter is um, the uh, this this amazing celebration that we do with uh, Christians around the world who get together to celebrate this radical reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. You know, for a lot of us in the South, Easter is really nothing more than uh, just being some, just, it's just sweet. It's just a sweet day. Reminds us that spring is here. Uh, You know, we get to put on our pastels and our seersuckers. It gives us an excuse to eat candy and uh, go on egg hunts. And it just, you know, the flowers are blooming and the sun is out. It's, it's the one time a year where we get to eat the Cadbury eggs with the you know yellow mucus in the middle of them, and uh, it's it's um, it's wonderful. It's sweet, but when you think about uh, the first Easter, the first Easter was not sweet. The first Easter uh, freaked people out. It was confusing for people. People people were traumatized by it. This 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 idea of this empty tomb and. As, as early Christians began to believe this, they didn't believe this as a symbol that represented, you know, springtime or, or you know, uh, there's a silver lining to every dark cloud. They, they believed it actually happened, that Jesus actually physically, bodily came out of the grave. And you would imagine as they went around and started to tell people that that's what happened, you know, that's a pretty polarizing thing, thing to say. And so people had various reactions. People got violent towards Christians. It was... Uh, it wasn't sweet. It was incredibly disruptive. It turned the world upside down. It turned their lives upside down. It reminds me of uh, this story. Maybe you're familiar with it. On on November 9th, 1970, there was a dead whale that washed ashore on the beaches of Florence, Oregon. I see some, I see some ha- you know, heads nodding. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, massive dead whale washed on the shore and uh, 45 feet long, weighed eight tons. And for three days, it just, this carcass is sitting in the sun, rotting, festering, stinking horribly. And so they're like, we've got, a big, we've got to figure out what to do with this thing. So they call in the Oregon State Highway Patrolmen to figure out what do we do with this? And they realized, okay, it's too big for us to bury We can't chop it up into smaller pieces and then bury those pieces. Nobody would sign up to do that job. And so their amazing idea was to put 20 cases of dynamite underneath the whale, which is half of a ton of dynamite and blow the whale to smithereens in the hopes that it would be broken up into smaller pieces, and then the scavengers and seagulls would eat it and take care of it naturally. So this was the plan. There's a YouTube video of this with a reporter, you know, narrating the whole thing. It's amazing. You got to go find it. But the video, you know, they set the dynamite, and there's a crowd of people that have come out to the beach to watch this moment, because who wouldn't want to watch this moment? Who wouldn't want to be there to to see what is about to happen? And so the dynamite is set, the carcass is there, you've got the crowd, and they do the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. It's like this nuclear explosion, fire and smoke and sand, and everyone in the crowd's like,
0: yeah, that was
1: awesome! And they're laughing and clapping, because this is just such a ridiculous moment until they begin to realize that all that whale meat is now raining down upon them. And so they're running for cover, running for their lives, as chunks of just whale is flying and falling on on top of them in fact there was in the video they show a car that was parked a quarter of a mile away that had a piece of whale the size of a refrigerator land on it and just smash the smash the car to pieces everyone was there it was was caked and covered in in whale stuff there was a nearby town that was just coated in whale and um the, the news reporter on this video made this unforgettable uh, sentence where he said, quote, the blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. <laughs> It's an amazing sentence. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. And all the seagulls were gone because they were scared to death from the explosion. So it didn't solve the problem in the first place. But I bring that up because here's this event that is so explosive. It's so disruptive. It's so, it just unsettled everything about this sleepy little sweet you know, seaside town. In the same way, the resurrection, it's not sweet it's, it's explosive. It's disruptive. It, it is, you know, the Bible claims that it is the de- decisive moment in human history that disrupts and changes everything, where the whole landscape is no longer the same after this explosive moment. So the question I want to explore with us this morning is how? How is the resurrection explosive? And from this passage, I want to show you two ways. It's explosive uh, at an intellectual level and it's explosive at a personal level. So it's intellectually explosive and it's personally explosive. Let's look at them one at a time. What, what do I mean by, by it's, it's intellectually explosive? Well, if you look at the story, if you go back and look at the story, uh, the story takes place uh, three days after Jesus was crucified. And one of Jesus's dear followers, one of his closest friends, uh, Mary Magdalene, shows up at the tomb uh, to visit him. And to her horror and to her shock, she, she has discovered that the tomb is empty. I mean, this is like going to a cemetery to put flowers down on, the, on a tombstone of someone that you love that has been lost, and, you, and the, the, it's been dug up, and there's nothing there. You would be undone. You would be totally distraught, and that's, that's what she's experiencing. You find her at the beginning of this passage in verse 11, totally distraught. She's weeping. She's weeping bitterly, But here's what's interesting about this whole um, moment is because Jesus told her that this would happen. You know, if you go back and you read through the actual gospel story, um, Jesus is all the time telling his friends and his followers hey, they're going to arrest me, they're going to torture me, they're going to crucify me, and then three days later, uh, I'll come back, I'm going to be raised from the grave. And so here's one of his followers who has heard that over and over and over. And she shows up at the tomb on the third day, and the grave is empty. And her first response isn't, Hallelujah! He's risen! This is amazing! He was right! He told us! Her first response is, Someone has stolen his body. That's, you know, if you look at verse 13 and 15, that's what she's thinking is happening here. That, in her mind, is the most natural and obvious explanation of what is going on to explain this empty tomb. Now, I would imagine um, some of you are here, it's 2023, you're sitting in a church, and you're like, okay, Easter is fun. I like the pastels. I like the jelly beans, but okay, the whole like Jesus actually rising from the dead thing, it feels like a stretch for me. I can't, I can't, I can't go all the way. That just feels like a fairy tale, I don't know how y'all believe this w- weird stuff. And so it's easy for us in, at, at this point in human history to look back on people back then, 2,000 years ago, and think, okay, the, these people were pre scientific. They lived in a world in which they, you know, they had a supernatural explanation for everything. There's angels and demons under every rock. And so you know, they were more gullible back then. They, they just believed this kind of stuff. But I would, I would gently say, uh, I think you're mistaken. Because look at Mary. Mary uh, was told this would happen. In fact, she sees the empty tomb with her own eyes, and the resurrection is still too big of a pill for her to swallow. This doesn't make any sense to her either. And in fact, it goes a little bit deeper. Um, N.T. Wright, who is, a, uh, who is a New Testament scholar, uh, a number of years ago, he wrote this massive book called The Resurrection the, uh, of the Son of God. And it's 850 pages of just dense historical scholarship, so it's not for the faint of heart. But but in there, he argues that the last people on the planet to believe in the resurrection would be Jewish people in the first century. And he says Jewish people in the first century believed, some of them, not all of them, but some of them believed that the resurrection would happen, but the resurrection would happen at the end of human history, and it would be a general resurrection by, you know, a bunch of people. Nobody had this category that there would be one individual human being in the middle of human history that gets resurrected on his own. And on top of that, um, it, was, it was anathema for Jewish people to worship a human being. No, it, it made no sense in the, in the Jewish religious worldview to say God could be worshiped as a human being. That didn't make any sense. And so when, when you think about, okay, here's what happened. Suddenly overnight, thousands of Jewish women and thousands of Jewish men came to believe this. That's fascinating. I mean, if you study the origins of Christianity, the fact that Christianity just kind of showed up, the fact that it's even, the fact that it showed up is insane. Because you have a group of people who didn't believe that the resurrection was possible and believe that it was uh, impossible to worship a human being as God, suddenly start to worship Jesus as God and say that he was raised from the dead? How do you explain that? How do you account for something such a massive seismic shift in their intellectual outlook on the world? Something explosive had to have happened to bring about that kind of change, and something did happen, and it was called the resurrection you see how it, it blows up your default understanding of the world. And for modern people, it, it, it rocks our understanding of the world intellectually as well. Because for modern people, you could say there's, there's really basically, if you boil it down to it, there's two ways to understand the universe that we're in. The universe is either a closed system or it's an open system what I mean by that is if the universe is a closed system, it means that there's, there's, there's nothing coming in from the outside. It's just this is what you see is what you get. It's the natural material world. There is no supernatural. It's just, it's just this. And um, it's whatever is scientifically verifiable, whatever is scientifically observable. And what that means is um, you and I w- were sitting on a spinning tennis ball in the middle of black nothingness. And we got here through millions of years of random natural processes. And, and when we die, we're just going to cease to exist. And everything else is going to cease to exist one day. The sun's going to burn out and human uh, civilization is just going to be wiped off the memory from you know the, the universe forever. Closed system. A lot of people that believe that, a lot of people think this is, this is the world that we're living in. The, 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 what I would challenge about that understanding of the world is, if, if that's your understanding of the world, then you have to come to terms with the fact that everything you do has no meaning. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that's not true. I believe that there's meaning. I believe that you create your own meaning. You create your own value and you define whatever kind of purpose you want for your own life. But think this out with me. If everything before you was random, meaningless nothingness and everything after you is going to be random, meaningless nothingness, that means basically this little slice of life that we call human history is random, meaningless nothingness. A thousand years from now, nobody's going to remember or care about anything that you and I are doing right now. We are cosmic accidents. We're bags of chemicals that have... Neurons firing off in our brain telling us that things have meaning, things have purpose, but it's not. It's just chemical reactions in our brain. We don't want to swallow that pill, that we want to think that we have meaning, we have value, and we have purpose in our life, but if the world is a closed system, there is no ultimate, ultimate meaning. There's subjective meaning, there's subjective purpose, but not at an ultimate level. But what the resurrection does, the resurrection explodes that understanding of the world because the resurrection says the world is actually open. There is a God And he is involved in the world. In fact, he cracks the world open and floods it with meaning and with hope and with life and with purpose. I mean, what the resurrection does, it it tells you that there's more going on than meets the eye. Because when you look around, you think, okay, death seems pretty clearly the way that everything's going to go. And what the resurrection does is it shows you, okay, despite all evidence, death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word in a world where it seems like there are certain things that are impossible n- has now become possible. Things that feel like they have been uh, irreversibly lost is no longer true. You, you see what I'm saying? What, you see how the resurrection it just it blows open our default understanding of the world. It, it unsettles us at an intellectual level, but there's more. Because it doesn't just rock our, um, our way of, of thinking. It also rocks our way of being. It's explosive at a personal level. So let, let's look at that. Let's look at Mary. Look at, look at what I mean by this. Mary, if you notice, there's a pretty big um, transformation that she experiences. In verse 11, she's weeping. She's, she's distraught. In verse 18, she's running around telling everybody that Jesus is alive. Now, what happened? Something big had to have happened. Well, here's what happened. When she, was, um, when she showed up at the, uh, at the garden that day where the tombs were, she was looking for a corpse. She was looking for a body. She was looking for a dead Jesus. Now, think this out with me. Let's say that she found him. Let's just say Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead or, or, or that's just the, that was the end of the story. He just died, and he just became this... Uh, spiritual teacher who died tragically young at the hands of an unjust and corrupt government. And that was the story. And so Jesus became just like every other dead religious leader who said, you know, here's my unique spiritual hot take on how you should live your life. I think you should care for the poor. I think you should turn the other cheek. I think you should, uh, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And so Christianity would just be, okay, well, um, take Jesus' teachings to heart and try to learn them and do your best to try to follow them, and that's Christianity. But when Jesus shows up in verse 16 and Mary realizes that this is, that he's actually alive, that whole approach to spirituality, that whole approach to religion just gets obliterated, Something otherworldly breaks in in that moment, because religion says, Here are these rules, here are these teachings, here are these things that you need to do, and so religious people we go out and we do them, we learn them and we do them and, we, and and we do the we try our best to be good people, and we try our best to kind of climb our way up to God, but the resurrection blows that whole way of being up because it shows you God comes to us, and he does something decisive to save us. He lives. He dies. He has risen from the grave, which shows you that Jesus is not just a teacher. He's a savior. And in fact, think about it like this. What do we know about Mary from the rest of the Bible? If you flip over to Luke chapter 8, it tells us that Mary had seven demons cast out of her. Now, regardless of what you think about that, I think we can all agree that she was uh, severely troubled, Uh, possibly had mental health things going on as well. She was uh, most likely someone who experienced homelessness. And because she's a woman living in an ancient patriarchal society, she would have been the the lowest of the low. She would have been, you know, bottom rung. And here is this person who was not just chosen to be the first witness of the resurrection. She becomes the first preacher, the first herald of the resurrection. And this little window shows you that the way that God relates to you and me is always, always, always through grace. He's always choosing people at the bottom, always choosing the failures, always choosing the screw ups, always choosing the people who can't get their life together, which shows you God does not relate to you and me on the basis of how much we have achieved, how good we are, how high we have climbed up the social ladder. It's always by staggering grace. That's why Jesus is even there. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And when God raised him from the grave, that was God's way of saying, I'm accepting all of his work on, our, on your behalf. It all counts. So when Mary sees Jesus in that moment and he's alive and her understanding of spirituality and religion gets exploded and she's been given this new hope that death doesn't win, that she is loved with a love that death doesn't even hold back, and she is saved by a grace that not even her worst screw-ups and failures can stop. All that comes together, and that's what detonates this nuclear bomb inside of her, and she runs off and tells the disciples that Jesus is alive. They have their own encounter with the risen Jesus. They run out and tell everybody that Jesus is alive, and that is ground zero for this worldwide revolution that hasn't stopped because here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet in midtown Memphis proclaiming and celebrating the same thing, that Jesus is alive. And some of us have experienced that. And if Jesus is alive, that means that you and I are loved with a love that is invincible, loved with a love that is death-defying. That changes everything. And so, the question for you and for me is as we hear this, as we think about this, as we come to Easter every single year, our, the, the question is what are, what are you going to do with it? You know, N.T. Wright, who I mentioned uh, you know, a little earlier, who's uh, the New Testament scholar, he came up with this thought experiment. And he said, okay, let's just assume someone gives you this amazingly beautiful painting. And it is uh, of such a painting, it's of immeasurable value, of immeasurable worth and beauty. And it's painted on this uh, enormous canvas. And you bring it home and try to find a spot for it in your home to hang it up. But because uh, it is, it's so big, uh, there's no wall in your home that can fit this painting. There's no space in your home that can just conveniently hold a a painting of this size and of this grandeur. And so you've got a choice to make. Are you going to knock down walls and rearrange the entire infrastructure of your home to accommodate this painting? Or are you going to walk away from the painting because it doesn't fit neatly into your home? And N.T. Wright is saying that is the dilemma that the resurrection presents for every single one of us. It's so big. It's so massive. It's so, it's so explosive. It doesn't just conveniently fit into the way that we normally do our lives. It, in other words, you can't just take it in and believe, oh, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and then just go back to business as normal. You know, you can't sit here and say, okay, yeah, sure, okay, I'll believe that Jesus is alive and I am loved with an invincible, death-defying love. And I don't know, y'all want to grab some brunch and watch the rest of the masters? Uh, you know, you, you, it's, it, is, it is of such a nature. It is so explosive. It's so over the top. Uh, everything else has to be rearranged in light of it. And so the invitation for you and for me this morning is this. To have our lives... Be unsettled and disrupted by the wonder and the truth and the glory of the resurrection. Because here's the reality if the resurrection didn't happen, then Easter is sweet, but we're all kind of wasting our time here. We're just rearranging furniture on the Titanic. But if the resurrection did happen, and it did, that changes everything. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray that you, would, that you would give us the humility and the courage to let our lives be disrupted, be unsettled by this, that we wouldn't just show up at church, okay, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, check the box, go back to life as normal, but I pray that you would give us the grace to have the eyes to see and the heart to receive something like this that is so explosive, so life altering, so history altering. I pray that you would uh, knock down the walls inside of our own hearts that feel like they're obstacles to really taking this in. Blow up the doubts and the uh, questions and the concerns that we have that that don't wanna make room for this in our own hearts and our own lives. But, Father, I pray that you would help us to bring this in and be so disrupted, so unsettled, that we might become people that actually start to resemble Jesus himself, full of grace and full of truth and willing to give our very lives away for our neighbors. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.